You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. They say there's no such thing as bad publicity. 17-year-old David Bowie knew that distinctively. That's why he ended up on television, talking passionately about his hair. It was 1964, a time when long locks on men seemed to signal a total breakdown of law and order, the end of Western civilization as we know it. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones had caused a cultural uproar with their shaggy mop tops. But David Bowie was not a Beatle or a Stone. Not even close. Hell, he wasn't even David Bowie. He was stuck living life as Davy Jones, frontman for an endless string of doomed R&B outfits. David had met Paul McCartney once in the mid-60s, but definitely not as a peer. He'd camped outside Macca's London pad with the other groupies, hoping to catch a glimpse. Amazingly, this earned David an audience with the cute one, who invited him to come inside. Paul politely listened to some of David's demos before wishing him well and sending him on his way. That was about the extent of David's fapness. The incident was fitting. If Swinging London was a party, David hadn't been invited. Instead, he was outside in the cold, nose pressed against the glass, watching all the fun go down without him. But trailing the pack of pop stars did have an advantage. It allowed David to study them intently, reverse engineering the image and affectations that came to them so naturally. So if the Beatles and the Stones had long hair, he'd simply grow his longer. Some slick talk led to an appearance on a BBC current affairs program called Tonight, where David heralded the rebellion of the long hairs. The grainy black and white footage, among the earliest filmed appearances of David known to exist, shows him poised, stern, and unsmiling, with his mismatched eyes peering out from underneath his flaxen fringe. He's promoting not his band, but his club, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Long-Haired Men. David somehow managed to keep a straight face as he railed against the injustices faced by both himself and his hirsute brethren. We're all fairly tolerant, he deadpans. But for the last two years, we've had comments like darling and can I carry your handbag thrown at us. It has to stop. The bemused host asks if David modeled his hair after the Rolling Stones. David's strenuous denial comes a little too quickly. The clip is hilarious. And the funniest part? The club's not even real. At age 17, David had already learned how to cultivate an image and use it to manipulate the national media. 
you can't help but be impressed. His day job at an advertising agency left him particularly well-suited to sell this most important of products, himself. He'd perfect the technique in years to come. Viewed today, the Tonight Clip is akin to watching an early rocket test for a mission that would ultimately launch David out of the stratosphere. The Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Long-Haired Men sham is admittedly very, very silly. But hey, David had finagled himself a spot on the tube. That alone gave him at least a shred of cred with the other showbiz wannabes. Yet when it came to David's music, no one wanted to know. He'd return to the BBC within a year with his band to audition for a performance spot on the radio. The judges' responses were unanimous. I don't think the group would get better with rehearsal. The singer's not particularly exciting. The routine's dull. An inoffensive, pleasant nothing. There's no entertainment value in anything they do. It's just a group, and a very ordinary one, too, backing a singer devoid of personality. Vicious? Absolutely. But in a way, the stuffed suits at the network weren't wrong. David was so successful at mimicking successful people that he muted all the things that made him unique. He was all bluff, but no heart. All image, but no substance. Not yet, at least. It was a learning period for the future star. Before he'd supernova into David Bowie, he was David Jones, a follower and a fan. Just another one of the London boys. Hello and welcome to Off the Record, the show that goes beyond the songs and into the hearts and minds of rock's greatest legends. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. This season explores the life, or should we say lives, of David Bowie. In this episode, we're going to talk about David the Mod, the relentlessly ambitious teen struggling to find his place in the pop pecking order of 60s London. August 29th, 1963. A major day in the history of popular music. Today, the future David Bowie has his first recording session. Think of all the incredible albums to come. Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, Station to Station, Low, Heroes, Young Americans. It can all be traced to this single day. Unfortunately, the day in question was an unmitigated catastrophe. It had all started off so promising, too, like something out of a movie. The assistant for a big-time agent happened to catch David's high school band, the Conrads, performing at a youth fair and liked what he heard. This guy had recently signed another local band called the Rolling Stones, and he thought maybe, just maybe, the Conrads might be the next big thing. So he invited the group to audition at DECA, one of the biggest record labels in the country. It all seemed too good to be true. And it kind of was. David may have had nerves of steel, but the rest of the band were nervous wrecks. Studios at the time were not the zen, candlelit music havens that we know today. Back then, they were more like top-secret laboratories, cold and clinical, complete with engineers clad in ominous white coats. Not exactly conducive to making rock and roll. The Conrads recorded just one track, an original called I Never Dreamed. The results were so shambolic that the engineers didn't even bother playing it back. David Bowie's first studio recording was unceremoniously erased. But a copy did miraculously turn up half a century later, found in an old bread bin. By the time Decca had formally rejected the Conrads, David had quit the band in a spectacular huff. His bandmates must have seen it coming. 
David wasn't really a group guy. It's true, the Conrads fan base had grown since David made his onstage debut with them a year earlier, rocking a PTA event with his classy white saxophone and sky-high pompadour. But it was obvious to David that this was strictly a suburban venture, destined only for church halls, pubs, and the odd birthday gig near their hometown of Bromley, England. This realization was hammered home after they suffered a humiliating defeat on a TV talent contest, losing out to a younger former classmate named Peter Frampton, of all people. Musical differences added to David's frustrations. He wanted to push the Conrads towards the R&B sounds of Marvin Gaye, but the others wanted to stay with the same tried-and-true Top 40 covers. He tried to get them to cover an old folk song called House of the Rising Sun, but the band refused. David was royally peeved when it became a global hit for the animals within the year. David was about to walk when the band got their DECA audition. After that one up in smoke, he had no reason to stick around. Now 16, he'd finished school with very little to show for it. One report card described him as a pleasant idler. By the time he left Bromley Tech that June, he'd failed every single one of his final tests except for art. Not that he cared. For David, his future was obvious. When a school guidance counselor asked him what he wanted to do for a living, David's response was immediate. Be a sax player in a modern jazz quartet. The well-meaning counselor found him a job in a local harp factory, but that wasn't exactly the kind of career in music David had in mind. His father, always willing to pull some strings, got him a job as an electrician's assistant, but it wasn't long before he quit. He didn't resign in as much as he just stopped going. David's parents were understandably worried. Mother Peggy was openly critical about her son's musical ambitions. She was frustrated by his inability to find a real job to entangle himself from the family finances. The Joneses' small Bromley home felt even more cramped with her overgrown boy living there, too. These musical shenanigans were just a passing fad, she thought. David needed some stable grounding to fall back on. This was, after all, the 60s, a time when job security was inconceivably strong, and many worked at the same company from graduation to retirement. David's father, John, however, was more encouraging of his ambitions. John was cut from the same showbiz cloth as David, and even tried to launch a cabaret act of his own as a young man. He followed David's music career closely, like a dutiful stage dad, offering advice when he could. Needless to say, this created some tension with his less indulgent wife. Eventually, David secured a job at an advertising agency in central London. It wasn't as glamorous as the rather lofty title of junior visualizer made it seem. David spent his days sketching ads and commercial storyboards for things like raincoats and a dietary cookie with the deeply unfortunate name AIDS. The 9-to-5 slog kept his parents happy, but David hated it and moaned about his blooming job constantly. There was only one upside. The offices were a short walk from Doble's, the best record shop in London. David's lunch hour would stretch into two as he scoured the shelves. It was there that he first bought records by Bob Dylan and Johnny Lee Hooker, two artists who would have a huge impact on the young musician. David was definitely in need of some fresh inspiration. By 1963, the first wave of rock and roll had crested, and many of the biggest stars were sidelined. Little Richard had become a born-again Christian and swore off the devil's music, for a time at least. Buddy Holly had been killed in the Midwest plane wreck that also claimed the lives of Richie Valens and the Big Bopper. Jerry Lee Lewis's career floundered after news leaked of his bigamous marriage to his 13-year-old cousin, and Chuck Berry was similarly shunned for transporting a 14-year-old girl across state lines. And then there was Elvis. He'd been drafted into the army, and after two years stationed abroad, the King of Rock emerged a neutered and lobotomized peddler of terrible films and schlocky pop. 
Within the space of just a few years, the airwaves have been scrubbed of the rough and ready sounds of the American South and the inner cities. In their place were syrupy confections, cranked out by hit-making factories, with the help of any half-wit with a hip haircut who could carry a tune. These teen idols ruled the charts, but for serious music fans, pop was passé. Rhythm and blues, now that was where it was at. R&B was the truth, rock and roll in its most pure form. Blues artists like Sonny Boy Williamson, Muddy Waters, and Freddie King were the new heroes for the switched-on cool kids. You know who they were instantly. David seethed with envy as he sat next to them on the train from Bromley to London. They were the ones dressed in the tight three-button mohair jackets with slim ties and even slimmer pants. Haircuts short and neat, often in a meticulously groomed fringe. Everything about them was crisp, clean, and cool. Who needed rock-obsessed teddy boys with their feeble attempts to mimic American greaser styles? They were stuck in the 50s. It was a new decade, and this emerging subculture embraced its newness, along with anything cutting-edge, different, and above all, modern. That's why they called themselves mods. Unlike the Beats, who rebelled against the materialism of middle-class America, mods were shameless consumers, gleefully sampling the fruits of post-war prosperity that had finally come their way. Like proud, pilled-up peacocks, they were eager to one-up their friends and rivals with the latest looks and records. Unlike the rockers, who rigidly divided the sexes into casts and chicks, mods flirted with androgyny. Men used makeup and eyeshadow to sharpen the top lines of their bone structure to match the sharp lines of their tailored Italian suits. Zipping around on tricked-out Lambretta scooters, these kids lived for the weekend when they packed in the sweaty basement clubs and jived to jazz, ska, and R&B. Their all-night raves were helped along by a kaleidoscope of pills, French blues, black bombers, and purple hearts. Soho grew jammed with image-conscious, gender-bending, non-conformist kids who worshipped American black music and continental fashion. Needless to say, this was David's crowd. He was a mod before mods existed. The term seemed to sum up his boundless creativity and restless pursuit of the new. He joined the throngs of ace faces and high numbers who turned out on the weekends to hear homegrown bands try their hand at R&B, the soundtrack to their exceedingly well-dressed rebellion. The scene was crammed with musical upstarts vying for attention from labels, who were tossing out recording contracts left, right, and center. The British music industry was generating the modern equivalent of nearly $2.5 billion annually. With that kind of payoff, record companies were more than happy to comb through the 20,000 British beat groups that had formed by 1963. The deceptively simple blues riffs proved just as alluring as the DIY-friendly sounds of Skiffle years prior. It didn't take much to strum a 1-4-5 pattern or honk a harmonica, but capturing the emotional complexities of the blues proved a little more elusive to these British white boys. As Seenster and future Yardbirds manager Simon Napier-Bell later observed, when a downtrodden black southerner sang I'm a man, he meant I'm a human being. When Mick Jagger sang it, he meant I've got a heart on. David saw the Rolling Stones in action when they opened for Little Richard in 1963. That same night, Mick gave David a crucial lesson in Frontman 101. Now, the Stones had yet to be crowned the world's greatest rock and roll band at this point. By David's estimation, their fan base could be counted on one hand. One particularly square spectator wasn't picking up what the band were laying down. Hey, you! He shouted at Mick from his seat. Get your hair cut! Mick stared the heckler down and oh so coolly replied, What? And look like you? The line would forever rank among David's all-time favorite put-downs. David decided to get in on the British beat bonanza, a venerable gold rush for young rock hopefuls. All he needed now was his own Rolling Stones to have his back.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 17-year-old David Jones probably wondered how he wound up singing Got My Mojo Working to a bunch of tuxedoed 60-somethings at a posh London nightclub. It was a fair question. Hell, the tuxedoed 60-somethings were wondering the same thing. This was definitely not the ideal audience for the King Bees, David's new R&B group. The t-shirt and denim-clad quintet made it through just two numbers before David received a tap on the shoulder and was politely but firmly asked to leave the stage. Usually he was pretty skilled at weathering these setbacks, but this time the young singer's confidence deserted him. As soon as he was out of view, he promptly burst into tears. It was a prime example of David's mile-wide ambitious streak biting him in the ass. He and his school friend George Underwood had formed the King Bees in the spring of 1964 to try and ride the R&B wave sweeping London. The success of bands like the Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds, the Animals, and the Kinks had sparked a record label Gold Rush, prompting groups from across the country to grab a harmonica and stake their claim. The Rolling Stones' influence on the King Bees was clear. They got their name from a Slim Harpo song that Mick sang on their debut LP, and much of the King Bees' set was made up of the same Muddy Waters and Elmore James songs the Stones frequently covered. David took his self-appointed role as the group's leader very seriously and set about trying to secure management for the King Bees. In typical style, he aimed high. Egged on by his father, David wrote a letter to John Bloom, a flamboyant entrepreneur whose washing machine empire had made him one of Britain's wealthiest men. David really laid it on thick. 
The complete letter has tragically been lost to history, but it did include this gem. Brian Epstein's got the Beatles. You need us. Big talk for a kid who still lived at home with his parents. Now, John Bloom had no interest in becoming a rock impresario, but he was amused by the kid's spunk and passed the note along to his friend Leslie Kahn. Leslie actually did know a thing or two about music. By day, he managed Doris Day's song publishing and boasted relationships with a host of hot young producers. He could make things happen, too. One client described Kahn as a man who could set fire to a bucket of sand. Les wanted to get a look at the band and booked them to play a set at John Bloom's anniversary party which is how David Jones wound up singing Got My Mojo Work into a bunch of tuxedoed 60-somethings at a posh London nightclub. The performance was a disaster from beginning to premature end. Most of the moneyed glitterati covered their ears in a desperate attempt to block out the deafening noise, so loud that the band didn't hear John Bloom shouting, Get them off! They're ruining my party! In fact, the only person at the gig who was impressed by the King Bees was Leslie Kahn himself, who agreed to take them on as full-time clients. David left his dreaded Junior Visualizer Day job and threw himself into the group full-time. Unfortunately, there was next to no demand for the band, so he spent most of his days hanging out aimlessly at Khan's headquarters. Les put him to work painting his office, along with another of his young, slightly hopeless clients, a South London boy named Mark Feld, who'd soon change his name to Mark Bolin, later to front T-Rex. In 10 years, Bolin and David will be dukes of the British glam rock scene, but for now they one upped each other while they whitewashed their manager's office. Where'd you get those shoes, man? Where'd you get your shirt? I'm gonna be a singer and I'm gonna be so big, you're not gonna believe it, man. Oh, right, well, I'll probably write a musical for you one day because I'm gonna be the greatest writer ever. David was just as good at hyping himself in the press releases he wrote for Les. Here's one sample from the summer of 64. David dislikes Adam's apples and lists his interests as baseball, American football, and collecting boots. A handsome six-footer with a warm and engaging personality Davy Jones has all it takes to get to the show business heights, including talent. Unfortunately, this talent was not on display when the King Bees entered Decca Studios that summer to record their debut single, Liza Jane. David and George had written the song in 15 minutes, and it shows. The B-side, a cover of Paul Revere and the Raiders' Louie Louie Go Home, wasn't exactly a great piece of work either. The rest of the band suffered from nervous jitters, but David was undaunted. You'd better get used to this, he teased the others as he approached the mic to unleash a cockney John Lennon impression. Liza Jane was a totally derivative rush job, a transparent attempt to cash in on the R&B boom, but it had attitude. But attitude alone doesn't sell records. Leslie Cohn had to call in some serious favors just to get it released in June 1964. It marked an inauspicious beginning for the future David Bowie's recording career. Appearances on early rock TV shows like Jukebox Jury, Ready, Steady, Go, and The Beat Room couldn't lift Liza Jane out of the nether regions of the charts. David's father, John, delivered perhaps the most astute assessment of his boy's achievement. I think he sounds terrible, but he must be some good because he's made a record. The failure soured David on the King Bees once and for all, and in July 1964, he dramatically informed his bandmates he was quitting. The other King Bees couldn't have been too surprised. David had always been rather shamelessly out for self. Nothing personal, you understand. He had a favorite expression, which summed up his cheerful selfishness perfectly. Numero uno, mate. That's who he was looking out for. Leslie Kahn quickly found him a new band where he could be numero uno. They were the Manish Boys, another act in his stable. On the surface, it was a good fit. With their name borrowed from a Muddy Waters tune, the Manish Boys shared David's passion for four-on-the-floor, horn-driven R&B. But the group had been together for years, and they weren't thrilled about letting some young interloper into their midst. Les Kahn had to do some fast talking. He's been on TV. He's got a record. Big news in the mid-60s. 
But when David walked into rehearsal clad in a buckskin fringe jacket and thigh-high boots, the Manish boys knew they had their man. Who cares what he sounded like? He looked like a rock star. Any lingering doubts vanished when David pulled out his cream-colored sacks and blew them away with King Curtis riffs. Needless to say, he got the gig. David spent much of the next year crammed in the back of a beat-up Bedford van, bound for pubs, clubs, and U.S. Air Force bases across southern Britain. It was the first serious touring that he'd ever done, and his skills as a frontman improved greatly. David learned to use the microphone like a pro and smashed maracas like a man possessed. As usual, he quickly assumed creative control of the band, pushing for covers from his beloved copy of James Brown Live at the Apollo, as well as songs by Ray Charles, Solomon Burke, and Conway Twitty. He also gave the Manish Boys a style makeover, stealing clothes from the trash bins outside the trendy boutiques on Carnaby Street. The billowing Russian peasant shirts, knee-length suede boots, leather vests, and longer-than-long hair certainly caught people's attention, especially women. David's skills at seduction were also honed on the road. His pursuit of women bordered on the obsessive. As soon as gigs ended, he made a beeline to the dance floor to chat up the girls before his bandmates had a chance to move in. On one occasion, he brought a lady up to the bed and breakfast room they all shared. No one slept much that night. During the Manish Boys' debut performance at Soho's Marquee Club in November of 1964, David caught the eye of an aspiring singer named Dana Gillespie. David also liked what he saw. He found her after the show, casually brushing her waist-length hair. David wordlessly took the brush and tenderly carried on brushing it for her. Moving right along, he asked Dana if he could walk her home. Dana was hip to this polite euphemism and immediately accepted. David may have given her some half-hearted excuse about missing the last train home to Bromley, but there was no need for corny lines. She was happy to share her single bed. After a night of what Dana later referred to as, quote, exploration sex, she brought her new beau downstairs to meet her father. It was a bohemian household and sex was hardly shocking, but what gave them pause was the unruly length of David's hair, which hung to his shoulders in a blonde, Veronica Lake-like swoop. The Beatles' mop top was funny, but this was something else entirely. Tonsorial transvesticism. Dana's parents were genuinely unsure whether David was a boy or a girl until he opened his mouth to speak. It's hard to imagine now, but to many in the mid-60s, long hair on men was seen as a serious threat to God and country. Which was precisely why David insisted on keeping his hair longer than even those bad boys in the Rolling Stones. It singled them out as a certain type of undesirable and caused a great deal of hassle for the band. One club promoter declared the Manish boys obscene because of David's hair and his increasingly fey on stage mannerisms. Another gig ended with the band fleeing for their lives while a gang of heavies followed in hot pursuit, shouting various homophobic slurs along the way. The harassment was indeed ugly, but it inspired David's first major public relations coup. The ever-indulgent John Jones had called in a favor and netted David an interview with a London newspaper. Never one to miss an opportunity for self-promotion, David was determined to give the reporter a better story than the old wannabe rock star singer angle. In addition to his musical ventures, David claimed to be the president of the International League for the Preservation of Animal Filament. Translation, a club for men with long hair. He declared his intent to approach fellow long hairs like the Beatles and the Stones for potential membership. It was obvious to the reporter that this club was a complete and utter fiction and David was lying through his teeth, but he went along with it anyway. It made great copy. The BBC caught wind of the story and invited David to appear on the nationally broadcast current affairs program tonight with Cliff Mitchellmore. Flanked by his fellow Manish boys, David touted his non-existent club, which had been given a much more media-friendly name, 
the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Long-Haired Men. It was a masterful performance, and the network conspired with David and Les Khan for an encore a few months later. In early 1965, the Manish Boys were booked to perform on the music show Gadzooks, It's All Happening, but the BBC publicly claimed that they wouldn't let them appear until David cut his luscious locks. It was a totally manufactured controversy, shamelessly ripping off similar stunts pulled by the Rolling Stones. But the Manish Boys really leaned into it. They printed up placards with indignant slogans like Let's Be Fair to Long Hair and paraded around the BBC headquarters until the producers supposedly caved. The Escapader and David Press are some of London's biggest newspapers. It could have been the band's big break, but within two weeks of the Gadzook's appearance, David abruptly quit the Manish Boys. It was all because of their new single, a cover of soul singer Bobby Bland's I Pity the Fool. On the surface, the song had a lot going for it. Shel Talmy, who'd worked on recent hits by The Who and The Kinks, was called in to produce, and it featured guitar work by a young hotshot session player called Jimmy Page. But as the future Led Zeppelin god packed up his Fender Telecaster, he frostily informed the group that the song was fine, but it wasn't a hit. And he was right. I pity the fool flopped. Adding insult to injury for David, the single was credited simply to the Manish Boys, rather than Davy Jones and the Manish Boys, as he had been promised. So just as he had with the Conrads and the Kingbees, David left the Manish Boys with little fanfare. His bandmates last saw him after a gig in April 1965, heading off into the night with a female fan. Typical. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? 
Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Young David Jones has struck out with three different bands in as many years. That's enough to make most wannabe rockers give up and enroll in accountancy school. But the experience seemed to bolster David's self-belief and stoke his impatience with those who weren't helping him get to where he wanted to go. Dana Gillespie, who becomes something of a steady girlfriend at this point, recalls his unshakable self-confidence. David just had to keep going until eventually somebody got it, she later said. He wasn't going to just stop and get a job in a shop, for Christ's sake. David was already a star to Dana's classmates, who pressed their noses against the window to catch a glimpse of the sharp-dressed singer with the Prince Valiant haircut who picked her up from school and gallantly carried her ballet slippers. They usually went to her parents' house, but once David took her out to Bromley to see his folks. The visit provided an unsettling insight into what drove David's limitless ambition. Dana described Jones' home as cold and soulless, a claustrophobic suburban hell bereft of joy and color. David's parents wordlessly munched tuna sandwiches and stared at the TV set, sharing nothing but space. Dana later said, There didn't seem to be any love in the house. When his parents left the room, David turned to Dana and said, Whatever it takes, I want to get out of here. But there weren't a lot of options. Leslie Kahn had grown weary of David's diva tendencies, and soon he was out of the picture. George Underwood, David's old musical comrade, was busy at art school. Without much else to do, David frequented the Giaconda Coffee Bar, the hip haunt for music hopefuls deep from the heart of London's Tin Pan Alley. David spent hours there nursing a single cappuccino, hoping that someone from one of the nearby song publishers would need a background singer to help with a demo. Unfortunately, they rarely did. Then one day, David noticed a group of men gawping at him. In a good way, not just because of his hair. It was a case of mistaken identity. They thought he was a member of the Yardbirds. David admitted they had the wrong guy, but informed them that he was, in fact, an experienced singer of some renown. As luck would have it, they were in a band actively looking for a singer. They invited him to audition for their group, The Lower Third, the next day at a nearby club. David showed up with a friend for moral support, Steve Marriott, later of the Small Faces and Humble Pie. He proceeded to blow them away with his musical talent and, perhaps most importantly, his outfit. David became one of The Lower Third. He dove into the group with his usual enthusiasm. Days after joining, he signed a playful pledge written on the back of a napkin. I, Davy Jones, hereby promise not to become too big-headed when I'm famous. Signed, this glorious day, the 10th of May, 65. If David thought the lower third was his ticket to instant fame, he was sorely mistaken. He spent most days crammed into the back of a converted ambulance that served as the band's touring van, speeding to and from their latest small-time gigs at ice skating rinks or pubs. It wasn't the most comfortable ride, but the siren came in handy if they were ever running late, which was often, considering an ambulance filled with a bunch of long hairs was something of a cop magnet. The mattresses piled on the back were good for those late nights when David couldn't make it back to Bromley, or for brief affairs with fans after shows. Many brainstorming sessions went down in the back of that ambulance, as David tried to convince the others to update the band's image. They embraced some of his more fashion-forward ideas, like sharp suits, sculpted hair, and Italian loafers. But any talk of wearing makeup on stage was halted with an immediate HELL NO, or words to that effect. They were a bit more receptive to David's musical suggestions, which could get pretty far out. Not many bands were performing Chim Chimmery from Mary Poppins or a rocked-up version of the Mars Movement from Gustav Holtz's orchestral suite, The Planets. 
For the most part, they played ear-splitting covers from Tamla Motown, the Detroit label that cranked out irresistible R&B with a poppy veneer. They also played songs by mod standard bearers like The Who and The Kinks. The Who in particular were a great influence, inspiring the Lower Third's noisy experiments with feedback and David's fledgling attempts at songwriting. The band's first single, a David original called You've Got a Habit of Leaving Me, sounded so much like a Who song that Pete Townsend once approached them in a gig and angrily asked, was that one of my songs you played? You've Got a Habit of Leaving Me tanked on the charts. What's worse, they also bombed that audition at the BBC and endured a volley of insults from a squad of the network's sharp-tongued talent selection group. Lame material, lack of any entertainment, out-of-tune vocalists devoid of personality. Usually this was David's cue to quit the group in a fit of pique, but he held out hope for the lower third. Unfortunately, there was discontent in their ranks. David's bandmates were less than thrilled when You've Got a Habit of Leaving Me was credited solely to Davy Jones and not the lower third. What's more, it was becoming obvious that David was the favorite of their new manager, a guy by the name of Ralph Horton. David had met the former Moody Blues roadie several months earlier at the Giaconda Coffee Bar and hired him to look after the group. Soon, it was abundantly clear that Ralph's interest in their flaxen-haired frontman extended to more than just business. Ralph was completely besotted with David and paraded his attractive new client around the clubs like a prized show pony. David, for his part, was only too happy to indulge him. He began staying overnight at Ralph's apartment, where, his bandmates noted, there was only one bed. David often told people he was bisexual, even during his days in the Conrads. Considering that homosexuality was illegal in the United Kingdom until 1967, this was a fairly shocking claim. Social attitudes towards same-sex partnerships were not exactly enlightened in the mid-60s. The nascent LGBTQ community was centered around the underground gay clubs in Soho, literal and metaphorical neighbors to the mod jazz clubs. David's slight build, handsome face, flamboyant fashion, and intentionally campy mannerisms allowed him to move freely between these overlapping scenes, which lent him a certain credibility in the mod music world. Homosexuality was considered taboo and dangerous, the ultimate subversion. As The Who's Pete Townsend explained, We thought David Bowie was gay. We thought all cool people were gay. It's unclear how much of David's alleged homosexuality was exaggerated to cultivate an image as a boldly experimental heir to the Beats and other radicals. There's far more evidence of David's heterosexual exploits around this period. His colleagues in the lower third bore witness to many of these liaisons, as did his bandmates in prior groups. To many who knew him, David was neither heterosexual, homosexual, or even bisexual, but merely sexual. It seemed to ooze out of him. He was a gleefully unapologetic libertine who delighted in both the psychological chase and the sheer sensual thrill. Moreover, he was fearless about displaying his prodigious physical attributes in pants so tight they may as well have been painted on. One early review featured this memorable description of David's manhood as, quote, unusually large, almost inhuman. David certainly knew how to flirt when the need suited him, and in the budding business of British rock, he could work it to his advantage. Once, as a member of the Manish Boys, a club promoter called him over to talk, man the man. Which way do you swing, he asked David. That question meant only one thing, and David's response was instant. Boys, of course. That sort of thing happened all the time. If you were young and desperate for a break, you knew the right answer. It's unknown if David used his powers of seduction to score extra points in his management deal with Ralph Horton, but he would have hardly been the first struggling musician who traded sex for favors. Simon Napier-Bell, manager of the Yardbirds, claimed that Ralph Horton once approached him to co-manage David. To sweeten the deal, Ralph supposedly promised Simon sex with a young musician, who sat demurely within earshot of the entire conversation and raised no objection. Simon, to his credit, declined the offer. Or so he says. 
Ralph Horton's blatant pro-David bias grew harder for the other members of the Lower Third to tolerate, and a rift began to form. While the rest of the band continued to take their second-hand ambulance to gigs, Ralph chauffeured the singer personally in his flashy Jaguar sports car. Rather than help load up the heavy amplifiers and gear after gigs, David regally sat and watched. At industry events, Ralph always directed the press to David, ignoring the others completely. A showdown between the band and singer seemed imminent. It occurred on January 29, 1966, as the group prepared to take the stage at a club in Bromley. David was excited to play the hometown hero, but there was a snag just before showtime. Ralph informed the band that they would not be getting paid that night. Their wages were going towards promotional expenses. The band wouldn't hear of it. No pay, no play. A standoff ensued with David caught in the middle, pacing nervously as his old friends and classmates waited expectantly in the crowd. His silence damned him in the eyes of his soon-to-be ex-bandmates. They walked, David cried, and that was the end of Davy Jones in the lower third. But they still had a record to promote. Earlier that month, the lower third released a second single, another David original called Can't Help Thinking About Me. The title was bratty enough to stand a chance with the supremely narcissistic mods, but the laughably conceited words masked a more personal meaning. Can't Help Thinking About Me had its roots in those unhappy evenings at his parents' house in Bromley, grappling with feelings of alienation and dissatisfaction. The character in the song ultimately leaves town for a never-never land after having apparently blackened the family name. The narrative can be vague at times. David forgot the lyric sheet on the day of the recording session and had to make up words on the spot. But Can't Help Thinking About Me does feature a particularly telling line, one he had no trouble recalling. I've got a long way to go. I hope I make it on my own. The image of a lonely traveler leaving home for the first time reflects his own creative quest, which had so far been fruitless. The song had substance. Even David, a notoriously harsh critic of his own work, recalled Can't Help Thinking About Me fondly in later years, referring to it as, quote, an interesting little piece. David wrote another interesting piece in late 1965, but it would take years before it would see the light of day. It was called The London Boys, a Bright Lights Big City tune about a 17-year-old fleeing the suffocating boredom of the suburbs for the adventure and excitement of the capital. Once there, the sharp-dressed character falls in with the mod scene, pops pills, jettisons their dead-end job, and sleeps on the street. Though it's an unflinching look at the perils of chasing the hip life, it's a strangely non-judgmental song. Yet it ends on a decidedly downbeat note. Now you'd wish you'd never left your home, You've got what you wanted, but you're on your own. Now you've met the London boys. Whether or not the song was an intentional self-portrait is immaterial. David had spent the last few years living the lyrics. He hadn't formally moved out of his parents' home, but emotionally he was already gone. A suburban kid living in exile. Lonely, ambitious, and desperate to fit in with the London boys. Producers were scandalized by the drug references, and the song was temporarily shelved. David wrote Can't Help Thinking About Me as something of a spiritual sequel. Though it barely registered on the charts, Can't Help Thinking About Me was David's most impressive work to date. It's fitting that his first mature artistic statement marked the birth of his artistic identity. You see, the record wasn't credited to Davy Jones, but to someone else. He knew early on that Davy Jones would never do as a showbiz moniker. That name belonged to the shy boy he was determined to leave behind in Bromley. He briefly tried out many aliases before tossing them aside like ill-fitting clothes. Much like his stints in the Conrads, the King Bees, the Manish Boys, and the Lower Third, they were doomed exercises in self-discovery. Who was he? David had to figure it out. 
He got a nudge in the fall of 65, when management advised him to change his name to avoid confusion with another Davy Jones, an actor and singer soon to become famous worldwide as one of the monkeys. David considered Tom Jones for a bit, but then some Welsh singer hit the scene, and that was the end of that. So he thought back to a John Wayne film he saw a few years earlier, The Alamo. He'd been drawn to the name of one of the characters, Jim Bowie, a real-life figure who tried in vain to defend the title fort. Adding to the historical pedigree, Jim Bowie gave his name to the Bowie Knife, which lent a certain dangerous allure to the surname. It was kind of cool. Knives, cutting edge, get it? It also helped him compete with the Rolling Stones frontman, who'd been dubbed Jagger Dagger in the press. In later years, David would wax poetic about this new moniker. It is the medium for a conglomerate of statements and illusions, he said. But come on, more than anything else, he liked how it sounded. Bowie. His friends and bandmates thought the name was stupid and tried to talk him out of it. It's ludicrous. It'll never catch on, they insisted. But ever the rebel, he stuck to his guns. Can't help thinking about me hit shelves in January 1966, just after the singer's 19th birthday. For David, glimpsing the record that bore this new name was like seeing his reflection for the first time. After years of trying on personas, styles, and faces, this one fit. Yeah, he thought. David Bowie. Let's see who this guy is. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Noel Brown and Sean Titone. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The show is written and hosted by me, Jordan Runtog, and edited, scored, and sound designed by Tristan McNeil. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids. No plug needed. Right, let's go. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. <laughs> you can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.